Comics in Motion is thrilled to be partnering with Humble to become Humble Partners. If you follow the link in the show notes, you'll be taken to Humble Bundle where you can get some access to some amazing stuff. Digital comics, digital books, video games, coding manuals. The amount of stuff that you can get there is obscene. Plus, you get it at a ridiculous discount. So here's what you need to do. Click that link, go to Humble Bundle. Not only are you going to get great stuff at a great deal, but you're also going to support a charity and you're going to help Comics in Motion keep the lights on. So click the link, go to Humble Bundle, get yourself some amazing stuff. Thanks. everyone and welcome to another episode of Indie Comics Spotlight, a show where we spend time looking at an ongoing series or graphic novel from a company other than the big two. The hope here is that we can do a deep dive on an indie comic you may have missed or give you a chance to talk about one of your favorites with us on social media afterwards. I'm your host, Tony Farina of DC Comics News and Fantastic Universes. I've been reading comics since I was 12 and while I love a good superhero battle, I gravitate towards indie comics and standalone graphic novels because they give artists a chance to connect with readers in different ways and tell stories they may not have been able to tell with traditional comics or traditional novels. I hope that you enjoyed the show. Okay, well, I have two guests today. Um, one is a voice you heard back on the Firefly episode, pop culture aficionado and all-around excellent gentleman. Jack, welcome back. Thanks, Tony. Pleasure to be back. Yes, I'm excited, and we, we, we can't see, but I get to see his work office. We, Dan and I get to see Jack's work office, and I'm telling you what, if I walked into his classroom as a student, I'd be like, okay, this is my guy. So I appreciate what your, what your classroom looks like. And the guest of honor, um, the reason we are here today is uh, I have been reviewing and reading this amazing book from Image Comic called Coffinbound, and I've turned Jack onto it, and he has been reviewing it too, and it is just mind-blowingly good. And so I reached out to the writer, and he graciously said, yes, I'll come and talk to you. So Dan Waters, thank you for joining me on Indie Comics Spotlight. Oh, thanks very much for having me. Oh my God. I love this book, like so much, like an obscene amount. And it literally, I, I keep reading it, and it's like, okay, I need to read something else, but I can't stop going back. And that, that has been a long time since as soon as I finished a book, a comic book, a series that I wanted to start over, as soon as it was over, that happened with this. So since I finished issue eight, I've read the whole thing twice again. So, um, so thanks for making something awesome. Oh, thanks for enjoying it. Um, yeah, I mean, that's always kind of what you want to hear, I think, as a writer that, um, yeah. Um, I was sort of tweeting about this like a few weeks ago, I think when issue seven came out, but, um, I think the thing you always kind of want as a writer is is to say something like if you're saying something over eight issues, you want that to be something that you couldn't say in one issue or you couldn't say in um, in in you know in a page or in a sentence because otherwise, what would be the point in making all this fuss and dealing with all this sort of shipping and paper and making artists draw everything? Um, so yeah, like when when it really connects with someone, that that really means a lot. Yeah, well, I I super appreciate it, and it's it's a uh... What I think works for me and what Jack has written in his reviews too, and we'll get into this as the, as the show goes on, is the layers, right? It's like, you've got, you're essentially telling two stories, but it's all one story. And every time you look at it, you see something different. And we'll talk about Danny's amazing art as we go, because I've never really seen anything like what she's doing in this. It's stunning. Yeah, she's phenomenal. Yeah, so 
Cool. Well, before we start, and Jack and I have um, loads of questions and ideas, and we've you've given us extra reading assignments, whether you meant to or not, just so that we could <laughs> understand this. Um, let's talk about you and your comic book origin story. We, as comic fans, um, all got into comics, and then you are living the dream, my dream. I'm assuming Jack. He and I are both teachers, and so it's like, hey, we get to talk about this stuff in our classrooms, but you oh, get cool. to do this stuff that we get to talk about. So. Tell us how you got into comics as a, as a young man and how you chose to, uh, you know, or how you worked your way into, and now, you know, you you write Lucifer, you've worked for the bigs, the big, 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 big boys with DC, and obviously Image is no slouch, and, uh, but, you know, you've, you've been all around. So tell everybody both of those kind of stories. Um, like, I think my, my sort of nexus point, or my, my sort of real big bang in comics was when I was about eight or nine, uh, my godmother gave me two graphic novels. Um, one of them was the Claremont Miller Wolverine. Um, and the other one was the Graham Higgins adaptation of Terry Pratchett's Mort, um, which is a phenomenal adaptation. Like, like um, I still I still go back and look at it because it's, it's one of my favorites. It's, um, you know, sometimes those adaptations don't work so well. That one's um, fantastic. And those two books, I think, are a real like starting point for me. And I think you could probably look at a lot of my work and see exactly where that came from, where that influence is still kind of there. Um, and yeah, I, I sort of had. I, I didn't used to like like you know comic stores weren't really on my radar, but I like sort of growing up, I had those. Uh, you, you got these sort of digest versions where they'd stick three Spider-Man comics together and print it with a with a cardboard cover, and you'd get that in like W. H. Smith. Um, and I'd I'd get those kind of sporadically, but then read them a thousand times over until the covers were falling off, and and that was always really good stuff as well. It was like Kurt Busiek's Iron Man, and it was uh, Peter David's Hulk, and oh. just like really really cool stuff. Um, and then I kind of fell out of comics. I think, you know, it's a, it's a pretty common story. So I fell out of it. And then when I was sort of about 16, I was hanging around the library a lot because I was a cool kid. Um, and, uh, and I, and they had a, they had a pretty decent, it's the library in Ealing where I grew up and they had a good graphic novel selection, including a lot of Sandman. So like a lot of people that was that was absolutely a sort of gateway back into into comics and into sort of the dc universe and reading that kind of stuff and now you get to write lucifer where you just yeah just and, now I get to write lucifer. and so you're like in a time machine going back to that 16 year old you're like seriously this is all going to be worth it it's yeah. amazing yeah all those all those library finds from forgetting to to bring stuff back on time are going to be worth it they're going to pay for themselves eventually yeah, that's um, awesome. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I did read a fair bit of Mike Carey's Lucifer as well um, back back then. So that was a really cool thing to to get to um, carry the torch on. Yeah, yeah, cool. So then, so then, so that's you. This is we've all been there. We've all been the young kid hanging on to our comic books and wearing them out. And that that's a story. Everybody who's listening to this, Jack was nodding along. We've been there. So how does that, then how does it become, you know, from that moment, that 16 year old kid at the library, which by the way, my wife's a librarian. So libraries are the best place 
to get comics without a doubt. Yeah. 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 So where do you, um, how did you then move from like that into then, you know, now I'm writing and now comics are a viable option for me and not just to drink. What was that? You know, what was your process there? Yeah, I kind of always, I always knew that stories were probably going to be the thing I wanted to do. Um, my root there was a little circuitous in that I originally started studying film, um, but I found that I'm I'm not really a film buff. Is what I sort of realized when I was when I was doing that. Um, I like sort of strange stuff, but not in some sort of I'm not sort of voracious with it in the way I am with um with books and with comics um, and it was sort of like like halfway through my first year there and I was sort of very frustrated how slow everything moves and how long it takes before you get to actually start making anything um and I realized like how many more comics I was actually reading in my downtime rather than rather than watching films and it it just made sense to sort of segue that way um so I ended up dropping that degree altogether um, and picking up a literature degree instead. Um, and while I was at uni, I met Casper um, Wingard uh, through like a like a like micro publisher that, that he was working for at the time, and I started working for for a bit. And we and we really hit it off, and and we started working on um, stuff in our free time. We, you know, it was a lot of a lot of pub chats, like after work, like we would go to the pub and we just would chat about things it would be cool to do in comics and. Uh, limbo entirely sort of came out of that, erupted it out of that, um, which was the first book we did at Image. Um, Image picked that up. Um, I think, I suspect that Eric and, Eric Stevenson and Image have just been sort of waiting for Casper to pitch him something uh, that was a passion project for a little while at that point. Uh, so, so we pitched him Limbo. They took that and everything kind of just um, went from there. And you've got, you and Casper have a new one coming out next month. Yes. Well, this, yeah. will come out. Uh, this will be out in December. So we'll, you know, we'll uh, yeah. time it for that to come out and the end of Coffee December, Mound. December 9th, uh, Homesick Pilots, issue one, uh, also with Image, which is us circling back. Um, having both worked now in, in comics for sort of five, five-ish years and uh, done all these things. He's been a Marvel. I've been at DC, and and we've not quite found the, the space to, to to get the band back together. Um, so we're really excited to be doing that. Um, and yeah, I think it's a it's a real evolution of, of what we did back then. Nice. That's awesome. Cool. Well, so the, and then now, so here you are. So when you got the call, who when you got the call? Because when you were doing Lucifer, it was still Vert was before Vertigo was absorbed right. into yeah. Black Label. So was that, did Karen call you? How did that work? How did you get that call? Was it Neil himself? And you're like, this is Neil. And you're like, no, really. How did you, how did you find out that you were going to get to do Lucifer? Uh, no, I mean, I pitched on it. Um, oh, you did? Oh, awesome. Yeah. Um, and the, I mean, I was talking to, so um, it was actually Jamie Rich. He's a, an editor at DC and he, um, he and I had met at, I think a Thought Bubble, or I'd, I'd set, but I'd sent him Limbo sort of, a while before that and we started chatting he'd like the book and we started chatting about doing create our own stuff at, at vertigo and i had a few pitches with him that, that kind of we we were talking about we were chatting on the phone and he said oh and by the way um we're also looking to do a new lucifer book 
um and this was around about the time the tv show was like really picking up and uh you know he's like would you be interested in doing that and i was like well yeah i'd be, I'd be very very interested in writing <laughs> stories about the devil and having dc pay them pay me for them yeah that would that would be um <laughs> i don't have to pay them they're gonna get yeah. me money. well no i mean you know but <laughs> you know i'm not i'm definitely not gonna complain yeah. um so so i came up with like a whole load of ideas and 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 sort of send them to him and and it took a good while and then the sort of Sandman universe stuff came later um and i sort of heard whispers about that sort of down the line like i know Sai pretty well um Cy Sparia, who was doing uh, the dreaming at the same time uh the loose started and i was done an excellent run hellblazer um and yeah he and i kind of we'd, we'd worked together on the shadow at dynamite um so so we were sort of watching this thing sort of form like is like will it won't it sort of uh uh but yeah that was that was a really cool thing and we flew out to dc flew us out to new orleans to meet um to meet neil um which was like one of the most bizarre experiences of my life to be honest it was um flying into i, I always forget like fahrenheit but it was like minus seven degrees in uh, like celsius in in new orleans which is insane. It should never be that. Cool. Yeah, I don't think yeah. it ever happened before, like on record. Um, so I flew in with sort of t-shirts and <laughs> thinking I'm in a swamp. Yeah. yeah. And then and then sort of I guess like one of the few times I've been outdoors and been like, oh, if I don't find shelter, I might die. Right. Um, uh, and then sort of Neil swoops in with you know big black coat and big black hair and um, sits with us for sits with us for a day in this sort of tundra um and just yeah just chat stories with us which is just really cool um he was really interested to know what we wanted to do with the stuff rather than trying to tell us what to do like his sort of first thing was like let's not worry about crossovers let's not worry about any of that kind of thing just what cool stories do you have to tell with these characters that's amazing yeah it's funny that you describe him that way because in like 93 I saw him at the Chicago con and it was the exact opposite. It was like blistering hot day in the middle of the summer in Chicago. And he was doing a midnight reading because of course he was. And same thing, black coat, black, everything. It's a thousand degrees. And he comes walking through. Jill was there. Jill Thompson was there. She was, cause she was working on Sandman doing the delirium stuff. And so it was like this whole, and it was just like, here he comes. And we're all like miserable hot and he not like, is he real? Is he a human? Like how is, so it's funny that, this many years later, you describe him wearing the same clothes and the same, regardless of temperature. That's how he dresses. That, that, that coat is like, um, like I, I watched him, we were doing a sort of photo shoot and I watched him um, empty his pockets as well. That, that coat's like Mary Poppins bag. As well. <laughs> that's amazing. Got that's, everything in it. That's awesome. That's amazing. He's pulling cool. out of there. Yeah, he was like, hold on, let me find. And he's got one of these, he's pulling his quill out. There yeah, 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 you know, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, full, full bird. <laughs> In case he just needs to pluck feathers. Leatherbound awesome. Lord of the Rings. <laughs> a hobbit in the other one. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, that's so cool. So then here you are. So now, so that's your story. I appreciate that. Thank you for indulging me to know. It's always exciting to hear, to live vicariously. So now I've, you know, that was a great, that was awesome. So, um, so coffin bound. So that, this yeah. happened. <laughs> and uh, my brains are still leaking out. As I said, I love everything about this book. Um, it's really two stories 
um, kind of, you know, it's all in the same universe that few of the characters from the beginning make it to the end. Right. Um, and, I mean, that's that's in the title, right? <laughs> right. We know. We right. And and Izzy tells us in issue one, we're all coffin bound, so we know. Um, we know how it's going to go, sort of. So uh, the premise is we don't. We it's somewhere in the world, and your opening book. And this is my first question, and then we'll just start peppering you. And Jack, jump in whenever you want. Okay. So sorry. I know. I appreciate you sitting here. He's like, but I'm spending my time watching Tony talk. So I, I appreciate you being here, man, seriously. So the opening book starts with the Kafka line. The second half of the book is all Kierkegaard. So we'll get into the Kierkegaard stuff, but you start with Kafka. Kafka is one of my heroes. And the thing that I love about Kafka is he does not give a shit about you and you needing to know the backstory. He just drops you in. So you do that. We just, Izzy's story exists and she is not long for the world, obviously. She's literally got sort of hellhounds on her trail. The vulture who circles the dying is with her. Um, and that's the world where you started. So I guess my, my first thought is, was, is that why you picked Kafka as the opening thing? And like, how did, how did you get dropped into the world that we're in? Like, do you know Izzy's whole backstory or do you, do you just kind of say, this is where the story starts? Um, I mean, yeah, like you, you definitely know your characters and, and, and who they are. Um, before, before you, or at least they reveal a fair bit of that to you as you as you go as well. But the Kafka quote, which was, I don't know if I remember it right, but it's it's from his his last letter. It's the "When I die, burn everything." Unread. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Which was, uh, it just felt like it's exactly what the sort of or like Emmy's uh, Izzy at least her mo for the for that first volume. The idea of um, trying not to leave anything behind you, um, and whether that's possible or not, because also that didn't work for Kafka either. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, if he'd had his way, we would we wouldn't we wouldn't be talking about him today. Right? No, that's totally true. Right? Yeah, because it's even called Happy Ashes, so there's that juxtaposition yeah. there. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, the I, like that just felt like entirely the the, the encapsulation of what I wanted to explore. Um, yeah, I mean, Kafka's definitely a big influence. Uh, Samuel Beckett as well is is, is one of my biggest um, loves. Um, so I think that sort of idea of dropping dropping you right into the into a situation, into a strange situation, that's a very Beckett Beckett esque uh, thing to do as well. It's um, you know waiting for Goddard, or well, actually, I can just name all of his works because it's yeah. it's pretty much all of them. Um, yeah, I just didn't want to um, waste too much time setting up backstory and the logic of how things worked in this world. I was more interested in getting to the root of the story. Um, um like I, I kind of looked at it like, um, like you know, to, to talk about Beckett, like Coffinbaum was very theatrically inspired. Um, that's something that Danny and I talked about like a fair bit, as we both kind of have a love of theater that we wanted to see how much of that you could maybe thread through a comic book so it's set dressing really the the city the the world that they're in it's it's a set dressing really it's a, the characters that matter yeah jack i don't want to i want you to say because you your yeah, first review of volume one was lovely so i want you to jump in here friend i think 
I, I mean, I think what Dan's saying is his story. What am I to say? But I think I don't think it needs it at all. I think the story starts exactly where it needs to start, and you're instantly um, in it with Izzy, and you want to to follow her and see where she goes. Um, I don't think we need a backstory. I don't think we need a prequel. I don't know if that's on your mind, Dan, but um, <laughs> it all works beautifully. I think um, it surprises me that you say you weren't a big you're you're not a big film fan. I mean, I did do a film studies degree and I did manage to make it through. Not that that means anything as such. But um, your, your writing feels cinematic to me. Maybe I'm coming at it from my perspective, but it, it, it feels like it's got that narrative drive that cinema does, I think. No, I mean, that's, I mean, that's cool to hear. Um, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not saying I'm anti-film in any way. It's just I sit down with certain other creators... Uh, who are very film, uh, very film sort of focused, and and I I just cannot join the conversation. <laughs> I I got stuck between uh, Oddie Masters and Brian Azzarello uh, at a, at a dinner, and 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 they're the biggest, both the biggest crime buffs, uh, crime film buffs in the world, and they and and they were just talk, they were just like firing back and forth, and I was just sort of sat there. Um, like they were talking about their favorite actors and I hadn't heard of any of them. <laughs> it was, it was not really that kind of situation. Um, I mean, I think, I mean, that's, sorry, Dan. No, I was that's just saying, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I just said, cause it, you're, again, your story, the, particularly the Izzy story, the first four volumes feel noir inflected. So you need know, this idea of crime buffs and, and you, you were talking about theater. I mean, that, that's not, I'm not as well versed in that, in that world. Um, I don't know how much noir or, or thriller crime theater there is, but again, that book felt like it had it to me. Yeah, I mean, that was definitely, I mean, that's definitely the idea is we were taking something, so we were looking at sort of grindhouse stuff. We were looking at uh, particularly the sort of like Bastard Pussycat Kill Kill as, as a kind of template. I mean, not a template, but just a stylistic kind of um, thing that maybe we could plug uh plug these other influences into um because if you just tried to make a i mean you know we're, we're writing for a or i'm writing for the american comics market so there are certain things that that are right to do for that um and yeah there was there was probably an element with gotham Bound of like how much can we get away with if this looks like a <laughs> if this looks like something that, that people expect um and then it isn't really that mm. What I find fascinating when, when you mentioned the, the like a, the play, and I think, and I think what you're saying, Jack, I think how this all comes together is that in those old more movies, they're all on a set. You're not on location, mm. so you're you are you know you're on a backlot somewhere in Hollywood or on a backlot somewhere wherever you know. So like the knock that Batman '89 always gets is that it's obvious that it was filmed inside. That whole movie feels claustrophobic, and I think. When you think about coffin bound as set dressing, the background is set dressing, it, it, you could see this as a play or as like an old timey film where you're just using the same shit over and over. It's kind of like on Star Trek, you know, the reason that there's like this week we're in an old timey gangster town, it's because they were filming that on the Desilu lot. And so whatever was around, they were like, let's write a show that takes place in this old timey Western town because Lucy and Desi already have that set built for us. And we'll just, and so, you know, if you watch a different show on CBS in the 1960s, that exact same scene is there. So it feels, 
it feels plunked in, right? So, so the fact that you could you could take coffin bound, especially in the first run, but even you know even in the second one, like when you think about the the church and everything with Takazin and all that, the you'd only need a handful of sets. You could even put it on a stage and be like, well, here's this that opening scene is here, and there's it is really claustrophobic. There's not a lot there. So I see as the as the person come who who likes film and who loves plays, I see where you're both coming at because I think. But I think that's also a testament to what you and Danny are doing, Dan, is that the reader is completely absorbed through his own lens or her own lens. You know, how, how much of the audience were you thinking about? Or was this like, we're gonna make this cool story we hope someone likes it. Like how much of that, like you said, we wanted to get away with as much as we could and it's foreign American comic audience, but, but was it really, I mean, were you really thinking about anybody other than, and again, I'm okay, cause I love it, but I, you know, I'm just curious about that. Like, were you thinking, was there ever anything where you're like, no, it has to look this way or people won't get what we're doing? I mean, that's always um, a consideration cause you know, I mean, if you didn't think that way and I know, I know it's, it's very sort of common and nice to sort of say, oh, we just made this, but totally for us because that means it's some kind of like pure art um, I don't really hold with that opinion just because if you're making art just for yourself, then that's just the kind of, that's a strange sort of form of masturbation. Like it's, you're not trying to, you're not trying to, trying to um, tell yourself something. You're trying to sort of put something into words and images and, 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 22 pages that um that you feel or that you think or that you're exploring um and it is for it is for other people you're doing it for other people you're you're trying to reach out and say this is how the world feels to me is this how it feels to you that's always my sort of that's that's my measure check for whether whether something works or not um so when i say like we're trying to like we're seeing how much we can get away with it was just a, it was more like are there other ways we can we can talk to people and reach people through this framework um so yeah that's a very sort of <laughs> flowery answer but uh, but I, yeah that's that's how i always always think about um approaching art well i think that i think that works i think that makes perfect sense because um obviously you're not if you were only doing this for yourself you would never have, it would just be some story in your drawer. You know, it's not like you're gonna, yeah. right? You're trying to put it, you're trying to put it out into the world and you're trying to, you're trying to connect with people. That's, that's the point. Um, whether you make certain concessions to reach the widest audience or not, maybe is a different question and probably not something we did with Coffin Bound. It doesn't feel like it yeah. in a good way. Yeah, I guess, I guess that's the question, right? Is like, would you rather be the person who makes the thing, like makes the thing that everybody in the crowd screams back in your face? Or do you want to, you know, every word of every song because everybody at the show is a fan of everything you've done? Or do you want to be the band where you've got one hit and three albums and everybody's there to just hear you do the encore and then they pack their shit up and leave? You know, like... So I feel like, and again, I don't know, because obviously who everybody wants to be Neil. Everybody wants to be whatever he does is gold. You know, you want that, that sense of commercial success. But he also 
got there by doing it his own way too, right? I mean, he's kind of inspirational that way. Sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's that's always the I think the thing. That's why I like. Uh, I mean, yeah. Just the the reason I like Neil's stuff so much is because whenever you go back to it, like my favorite stuff by him is generally speaking his short story, which I think is also why Sandman works so well because it it is so much of that. But it's just you know there there, there is there's there's so much you know fandom and, and 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 there's glamour and all of this sort of stuff and and but at the core of it there's just really really good storytelling um that's that's what i want to make is just good stories um and sometimes yeah sometimes it might lean a little bit more on the obscure end sometimes it's definitely more more pop stuff like I'm not going to write in the same way I write Coffin Bound when I when I do stuff for DC, you know. Um, it's not the same. I mean, it's it is a lot of the same audience, but it's not it's not the same playground. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm I'm always excited by sort of sitting down and getting to write stuff and put stuff down on paper. So it goes in all sorts of different directions, and I'm I'm never kind of wanting to curate it to the point where I'm where I'm only doing one thing like Homesick Pilots uh, my book coming out with Casper in in December it's extremely different to to Coffin Bound it's um that's taking a lot of sort of like manga influence and stuff like that which I've never really dug into before so I'm pretty nervous for that to come out because it's a very different style to, to anything I've done yet um it's a lot less dense than coffin bound or lucifer uh it's a lot more sort of uh sort of fast paced i'm drawing on a lot of sort of like urasawa and and, and stuff like that so yeah it, it's always about doing doing new things doing things that that you find exciting that's awesome well i've got lots of thoughts on the characters in coffin bound i know jack does we, we've been we, we go back and forth about what who we think is who and what the hell is going on and uh, Jack, what, where do you want to start with that? Like, in any of the characters, I know you've got thoughts. Where would you like to go, sir? Should we go volume one first? Yeah. Right kind of um, I don't know. I mean, Izzy has that, for me, has that real um, nihilistic, let's hope, let's hope I'm right, uh, outlook on life. Um, and I don't know, like, again... I'm sorry, I, I am a film guy, so I'm going to keep coming back there. I, I, don't, I don't mean to, but um, like Tony and I, we were throwing them ideas back and forth, weren't we? And I kept coming back to and coming back to um, this idea of Tyler Durden or Fight Club and this idea of um, the combination of nihilism and, and existentialism, I think. I don't know how close that is to what your intention with Izzy. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, that's extremely close. Like, <laughs> uh, like Izzy... Part of the part of the sort of nucleus of, of, of Izzy was I was reading a fair bit of there was like a real like resurgence of sort of nihilist philosophy happening happening right around that time and everyone was sort of reading reading Eugene Thacker and Thomas Ligotti um, you know cons conspiracy against the human race and, and, and these kind of books um, about sort of nihilist you know you know scratch scratching my head as to why that was happening you know just like. A, few years ago <laughs> like two years ago with everything that's been happening politically and, and, and stuff but um yeah i was i was sort of digging through this stuff and i was like oh it's really cool and it has this real great like aesthetic to it and you get all these like beautiful dark 
grizzly sort of lines about you know how to live and how or how how to not worry about life there's some weird stoicism which goes beyond stoicism because it's not even saying it's not even saying you know don't worry about it because there's no point it's saying it's saying you've already lost so don't worry about it by by being born you you're already sort of suffering um so Izzy was kind of, I was like, well, what if someone actually tried to live by that? What if someone really tried to, to actually just live that that lifestyle? Um, and the fact that that resulted in a book called Coffinbound, I think probably um, probably shows how well I think that would actually work. Yeah. Well, she she embraces it wholly. And, and, and what I find interesting is, well, like the the... The flip to that is because I totally agree with Jack's assessment of her and, and your, your confirmation of it, obviously, is there. So the fact with Cassandra and then Taka and how they are is part of her life, like it's almost that was like a, a moment where maybe she got tired of that or she just thought, you know, because I don't I don't she doesn't feel like a totally selfish, awful person like she's self-centered, but she's not like she's not interested in harming Taka, but she does. She's not interested in harming Cassandra, but but she does. And so, like in that moment, it's like in the past because we see the picture on Taka's um, dresser. We know that they exist, that they have a whole life, and she's obviously regretting getting off her nihilistic life and trying to like live a happy existence for a minute. Um, and we don't see that, so we're just left scratching our heads as readers, wondering why she would choose when she's on a self-destructive path to, to get involved with these people. And I guess my, my read on it is she didn't intend, like it was supposed to just be maybe a fling with Cassandra and then that turned out that she ended up loving him and, and talk, like she didn't mean to love them, but she does. Is that, was that, was that your read on her? Cause again, we don't know her whole backstory, like that that was an accident. Um, I think there's more, I think it's more about you know, I don't think everyone's anyone starts as a as a nihilist. I think it's something you do to put up walls. Um, so I think that it's a more of an after the fact kind of kind of thing. Um, when you think that your presence isn't intrinsically harmful, um, then yes. So yeah, like the idea that she's trying to remove herself uh, from the world because partly because it's painful to be in the world or it's painful to leave the world with these connections, but also because she thinks that by being connected to, to people, she is intrinsically harmful. Um, but we see how well that plays out. <laughs> yeah, not not very well at all. I, I, I'm always heartbroken. Like Taka's story of the whole, through all eight issues, it's heartbreaking. Um, I, didn't, I didn't expect in my third reading through, uh, to love doll as much as I do do because <laughs> um, at first she seems like such a I mean she's not a bystander she literally rips her skin off in front of people every day like that's her job so she's not a bystander but I, I didn't realize how important she was to me as a reader um, until this last the last read through which again was just yesterday after you know so like it, literally in the last four days I've read the whole thing you know three times so yeah, that was always that was always Danny's favorite. Yeah, talk about. I would I would love to hear more because because again I don't 
was that was her intent? Did you already know Dahl's story when you started this these arcs, or was it that because you kind of you fall in love with her tragic, and and she just she she's the best of them. Like you could argue Tatter is when we meet him later, but like to me, Dahl's the best of them. Um, so she's easy to fall in love with, but I just didn't know if that was intentional from the beginning. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think, yeah, I think that was one of those things that kind of grew organically. Her role kind of grew as as the series went on, um, as Volume One went on. I think, um, and by the time we started Volume Two, we knew she was going to be uh, like very central to that one. Um, yeah, like it was just again the sort of thing of, of Danny designed her, and we looked at that and we're like, oh, this character has real life and definitely has a story here and, and she, she needs to we need to like explore that we need to we need to um, respect that uh so yeah yeah her, her role definitely grew as the series progressed to the point where she actually yeah, she becomes very important to the to the end of, of where we've left things yeah yeah well and we'll we definitely when we get to the end we'll talk about the end because i don't Again, Jack and I have been going back and forth on what we think, and hopefully you'll tell us. But I don't want to. I'll save that as our, as when we get there. What else, Jack? What other what other stuff? You just go, jump in, my friend. Well, I think um, like Danny just mentioned. Oh no, so Danny just mentioned, and then um, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on like where that concept for the um, the skin stripping came from. It's such a striking image when you first see it in the book. Um, and you know, it fits within the world of kind of noir of crime. We always get that standard scene where we go to to a strip club. Um, so it fits that nicely. But but then you take it to this whole new place, this whole another level um, that feels like a criticism of everything, of the act itself, of the <laughs> enjoyment of a criticism of everything. A criticism of everything might be my favourite scripture. <laughs> Put that on I mean, the hard round when you put all eight together, a criticism of everything. Yeah. It, I mean, I don't know about you, you know, we've all, I'll say, we've all been there, you know, nights out or what we call, Tony, I don't know if you call it the same, what we call stag dudes here in the UK. Um, when you get out with people before they get married, like it's a horrible experience. Um, <laughs> it sounds awful. Yeah. I've never, I've like, never done. Yeah, but I know of, but I've never, because again, as you said, not, it sounds like a horrible experience. So. I just have skipped that stuff. Yeah, not missing out. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it was just again the idea of there's the sort of like nihilist idea idea of everything's like an object and mm. everything is you know we are just machines and we think that we're we're hallucinating that we're we're, we're real um, you know thinking and thinking and and um, feeling. Uh, and just the, uh, I always like the, the the sort of ship of Theseus idea that you know, if you remove things, how many things do you remove from something before it stops being itself, or you, you remove or you replace? Um, and I think with desire in general, you know, like sexual desire is an easy, easy, easy and strong sort of one to to, to latch onto. So so that's why we kind of went with that. But I think any kind of desire. There's there's a terror that there's a kind of lack at the very center of it, um, because you know what bit? So like you say, like you know, on a, on a sort of shitty stag dude, what bit is supposed to actually be the good bit? Like, what do you actually want out of a, a strip? What does anyone actually want out of a strip club experience? What 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 are they trying to get from that? They're not gonna get you know 
if, it, if it's a sexual thing, there's no release involved. There's no, no sort of thing. So what's the, what's the point? But I think you could extend that to any kind of design. You know, if you talk about your sort of like career or whatever, like what's the point? Where's, where's the, and by point, I don't mean in general, I mean the specific bit. What's the specific bit that where, where you're, you know, where you, that you're putting all this effort into? Um, and I don't think it really exists. I don't think, I think we're, you know, more about the journey and about the sort of chase um, as, as creatures, you know. I can, I can get really boring here and go into sort of like Nietzsche and stuff, but, <laughs> but I won't. Um, sort of, you know, and I think like the, the idea of like strippers who, who take their skin off was, was a way of trying to reach towards that. The idea that where's, where's the object, of, you know, in the object of desire, where is, where is the point of desire? Where, where, at what point does it just become parts? Because the scene, and again, and yes, this would be a good place to talk about Danny. I mean, we could just wax poetical about what she does. It's in Brad's colors. Mm. He steals some scenes. No offense to you and Danny, because you were, what you're doing is amazing. But so, there's some pages that's like, Brad's like, watch what I'm going to do. Ah! His colors just, his color palette for this book is special. I love it. But yeah, scene, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know that Danny's the easiest artist to color for for every colorist as well because her her work is pure black and white um she doesn't do gray tone she doesn't do anything it, it's just exactly what needs to be on the page or doesn't um so i think that that does need like the right colors um and the right approach and yeah brad i worked with brad on like on like a project before and i was like oh this is definitely the guy like i, I knew he'd sort of nail that yeah, he, it's amazing. And that, and then that scene that, that what Jack was talking about, when we first see really what Dahl is doing and in its entirety, we watch the whole striptease and we see the client in the chair, miserable. That image of him, like his fingers clutching the chair, on the back of the chair, there's chains. And honestly, the first time I was like, is he chained there? But he wasn't, like he's free to go, but the fact that there's like these links around the edge of the chair, it's so startling. And so I wonder, did you write like, Danny, this is what I want it to look like from the from the voyeur's perspective? Or was that like her, you're like, look, Donald's gonna cut her skin off and it's gonna be hard to watch. Was that her like, I want us, the, the viewer, to see the pain on the guy's, on the guy's face as he's doing it? Cause he thinks he wants this, but really he doesn't, but he can't get up. So. I was just curious about that. Um, I mean, like the the chains and stuff. That's all, Danny. Um, yeah, but yeah, like the, the the patron and how that affects him and stuff. That that's all in the script. Um, yeah, I mean, that whole world, like Danny's designs for the whole world, is are just, you know, my favorite. It, like, like there's a there's a real thing, particularly with image books, where I always want that to be something where it's a real sort of hive mind collaboration um i want those books to like like i sort of said homesick pilots is a very different book to this because it because when i work with casper we have a very different rhythm to me and danny um and those rhythms are exactly what you're looking for as a as a creative team you know like that's the reason why you do this and not prose um is because you get to or at least, you know, I'm only talking for, talking to myself, but uh, talking for myself. But the idea that you get to collaborate and you get to sort of back and forth on this stuff um, a whole load, like all of the design in in Coffinbound is, it came out of like 
hours of Danny and I like sending each other references and mood boards and, and all this kind of stuff and just talking on the phone about how things would look and feel before there was ever um, anything in the script. Um, so yeah, like Danny's, you know, the, the, the world of Coffinbound couldn't have been designed by anyone except Danny, I don't think. It, it, it's, it's like haunting, right, Jack? Is that, isn't it what you said in your review? It's, it's, it's uh, I, I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. Long after you put the comic down, it's, it stays with you and images keep coming back to you. And I can see why, you know, I'll be doing the same as you, Tony. You want to keep going back to it and reliving that image and knowing you're going to get something different out of it each time, I think, as we have been in our discussions of characters and, and things. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, to be respectful of your time, so I, I, let's um, so let's move to volume two. So Izzy dies at the end of volume one, everybody. Shocking, it's called Coffin Bound. She tells us on page one, essentially she's gonna die. Um, so, but, so we follow her ward kind of, um, who hates her and loves her and doesn't know. Um, Taka, who's of eight, we don't know how, like her age is ambiguous. She's clearly an adult woman, but she's a young woman, but she seems to have a lot of um, age on her tires. Like I'm not, like her life sucks. Uh, and so we follow her into, into part two where she f finds God. And this is where the Kierkegaard stuff comes in. So I did my homework and um, Jack's argument. And I agree we're on the same page. So Jack said, we believe, and this is where we'll, you'll tell us if we're right or wrong. Taka is the night of faith that we, that shows up in the Kierkegaard fear and trembling. <sighs> Looks like we are wrong, Jack. <laughs> Dan's finding a polite way to let us down, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Dan, Dan's, Dan's trying to desperately remember exactly how that plays out for the Night of Faith. Um, I don't know. It, it, again, it was a more... Um, I mean, yes, I, I think I think the bottom line is is yes, like it was um, like there's Kierkegaard quotes at the beginning of every issue of Volume Two for a reason. Um, it was a, it's about faith and about absurdity, the absurdity of faith, which is which is really the thing that, that Kierkegaard digs into in, in in Fear and Trembling, like that his brand of Christianity, which is why he's sort of considered the the, the father of existentialism is because he basically you know it sums up as well either there is no god and we're screwed or there is a god and you just have to take a leap of faith into that idea you have to embrace the absurd uh and worship god despite all evidence to the contrary because that's the only way which you're not doomed uh, to, to sort of non-existence and, and, and nothingness. Uh, and so the absurdity of, of faith, uh, but I think what, what separates Taka from that is it's, it's, I wanted to look at the absurdity of faith versus the absurdity of love as, as sort of human concepts. So, so yeah, kind of, I guess is the answer. It's fair. Well, in the Kierkegaard, the line I wrote, the, the paradox of faith, like absurd, of course he calls it the absurd love, but then the uh, paradox of faith and this argument that he makes about the single individual versus the group. And I think that's where Dahl is so important. And then she meets Tatter and she, she develops this group around her that 
that she obviously shouldn't have done because then the individual um, actions she takes about bringing in, you know, bringing death down to get the vulture in um, to prove God's existence now is affecting the people around her. And so she's, so her faith, her individualistic single-minded quest is now bringing down the group. And I, that came up a lot in Kierkegaard too. So, so as you were developing her team, her, her, you know, kind of Scooby gang around her, um, we needed to love them in a short amount of time too, right? In order for that to work. Um, yeah, I mean, it's more about giving her options and, yeah, just, I mean, you know, I I, I wouldn't purely put the thing on, on, on Kierkegaard, like, Kierkegaard already wrote Kierkegaard, so I didn't sure, want to, sure. like, write okay. it again. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah it, it's, again, again, I think more about exploring something single-mindedly and then life doesn't tend to let you do that um yeah like you know no man is an island uh, we we do we we bounce off each other we we experience different things day by day we change and we grow and we progress and yeah it, it's it's hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair no that's totally fair and i agree i mean i get what you're saying right kierkegaard already wrote that you weren't trying to rewrite that i was just trying to like see because as a as a person who also you know i'm an english teacher and i studied all that all that stuff too so i'm always looking at at where it is this like what are you pulling and then making it your own not to say that you had to just retell a story that that existed but how do you how do you make that your own and where did your inspiration for the second story arc come from um you know and the the, the god is a drug was fan just genius I loved every, I mean, that is fascinating. I, I can't get <laughs> yeah, past. That, that was something we were quite careful with. I didn't just want to do sort of like, oh, look look how bad religion is, the opium of the people sort of uh, sort of thing. I didn't want to just make them all, portray them all in this in this sort of super, super negative. Look, uh, you know, look, everyone who likes religion is a, is a junkie because I don't think that's fair uh, at all. Uh, so yeah, treating that in a, in a slightly more, open way I think I think actually like opened a lot of options for us yeah that's fair Jack I, I know Jack sorry comic sorry Tony I think believing in God in the comic makes you any worse than almost everybody else in it to be honest um it's not like we can have any faith in the in the other institutions that you present to us yeah I agree well I was going to actually say Jack I know you and I've been going back and forth about the yin yang black and white killers and we're both at a loss. And so this was our chance to actually ask the person who created these, what the fuck? Go, Jack. I know you've got questions about them. Well, no, don't go, Jack. Go down. I mean, as much as he's willing to reveal to us. No, I mean, like, what, what do you think? I don't want to. <laughs> what do you think? Uh, I can't remember. Tony, where did we get to? I okay, can't remember. Well, I my theory on the black and white killers, the yin yang killers, we didn't know what to call them exactly, is they're giving Taka a choice and of like, uh, you could do this or you could do this. And she gets to choose her own death and she gets to experience her own life and death in separate ways. And I was curious is if maybe the yin yang killers were the way into the world, into the world, the real world, like wherever this world of coffin bound is set in this play that you've created, 
the yin yang killers are there too, but they're giving Taka away out. Um, and that that's real. Like there's, it's, it's like, not to say like you're trying to get all like interdimensional, but they're genuinely showing you like, there's this other way to go live a normal life. You don't, these are choices you've made and that every choice you make is affecting those around you, obviously, you know, because dolls dragged in, tater strutted. So, so I thought the yin yang killers were, liter were literally giving her, showing her both paths, not like just in her head, she was genuinely living them in kind of an altered state. And that in another version of issue seven, um, it ends like there's, we could just pretend there's another book that exists, it's issue seven point A. And it's the exact same thing, but in a different world. That's just kind of where, I, again, I'm grasping at straws, but that was my thought. I mean, yeah, pretty much. Like it's, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's the, two, the two paths that she could, she can take and she chooses. She chooses, she chooses to not make it either. Again, mm -hmm. coffin bound. Um, was that hard to kill Taka, or did you know she wasn't going to make it? Yeah, I mean, again, it's in the title. Um, yeah. But the idea of killing the protagonist before the end of the arc was definitely something that I thought was interesting to, interesting to explore. Um, yeah, um, that, that, you know, I'm quite into sort of like story structure and how stories work and, and things like that and the and the idea of doing that and still making it one story uh, was something I was really interested in. I loved it because the of that because this goes back to that. Like the things that 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 Izzy puts in place are now affecting, you know, they kill Cassandra dies, Taka's life is this now. Taka dies and it's now affecting Dahl. And, and so if Izzy doesn't do what she does, Taka doesn't do what she does, which means that then Madame Entropy, the whole final issue with Madame Entropy coming, which by the way, visually those pages where she's coming right at us, those are like, I want those posters on my, I want those as, as on my wall of Madame Entropy walking straight at me with you like telling us, dear reader help is amazing. God, that was so beautiful. I can't even, Again, you just want to stare at it and be terrified and love it. It's such a weird thing to feel that way, to be scared of something, but then not want to look away either. It's, um, <laughs> yeah, it's definitely what, yeah, it's definitely what we wanted out of it. Um, Madam yeah. Entry was like, Danny, Danny was delighted by that when I wrote her into the script because Danny, Danny likes to say that entropy is my favorite word because it's the kind of thing I talk about all the time. It shows up on the first, in the issue one, though. You tell us she's coming. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, um, that was so, it was so amazing. So yeah, I think it was a smart way to go because again, like you said, story structure, but by killing, by killing Taka off and then we, it's like, it's not really an epilogue because it's the continuation of the events that were put in motion in issue one. It feels like you could in theory, just pick up volume two and read that as a standalone but you're missing how you got here, how Taka comes to be. And, and, and so that's important because the events of issue one with the Earth Eater and everything all come back. And when the Earth Eater eats that sandwich, I don't know, Jack, did you laugh? I burst into laughing, laughing when Earth Eater's sitting there eating a sandwich. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure if I laughed. I, mean, I thought it was hysterical. I don't know why it was like because of the absurdity of it. like. He's literally got like maggots and shit coming out of his sandwich. It was so funny. 
I was just a bit more concerned about what was in there exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Himalayan dirt, I believe. Okay, yeah. fair enough. Um, yeah, I, I, love mean, the idea. I mean, we always intended um, the book to be, Coffin Man was always intended to, to read like a series of novels. Um, so you don't need to pick up every issue in, in a, I mean, you probably need to pick up every arc, <laughs> like as in uh, every issue in the arc to, to, to get a full story. But every arc was definitely intended to sort of stand alone, but, but add up to a bigger picture. Um, and I know a lot of books say that, but I think we really kind of, we, uh, when, when I sent her the first script, uh, issue, uh, volume two, so the, the issue five script, Danny called me up and she was like, she said, she said to me, like, it's like you've, um, it's like you were a, a different writer who was handed the IP and didn't really like the first book. So he decided <laughs> to just rip out everything that you didn't like and, and take it in a totally different direction. I was like, yeah, that's fair. I mean, not, not the bit about not liking it, but just, uh, just the idea of, of, okay, we did that. Now let's do this rather than sort of try and do victory laps on on what we've on what we've already done let's let's do something else let's always do something new and something something only different that sounds promising Dan that like there might be more <laughs> yeah I mean we're definitely like you know we've we've put the brakes on now um because the world is screwed um and the idea of digging into another um Pile of research like that uh, doesn't massively appeal right now. Uh, and Danny and I, there's other stuff we want to say and other stuff we want to do. So we're, we're working on stuff. Um, it's just not specifically coffin bound. Um, but I think anything we, we do together at coffin bound has, has appealed, probably will as well. It won't stray too far. It's just about what kind of subject matter we want to dig into and what makes something coffin bound as opposed to something else so so we could say that's the we were so it's right you're saying you just put the brakes on it doesn't mean it's over it just means we're stopping and maybe in a year or two issue nine will appear on our doorsteps yeah well, i mean we'll see we'll see how like we'll see how it goes basically we we'll see what we want to do it's not so, a book either of us have ever needed to make like it's not you know a sort of like bread and butter kind of thing so it's, it's always been a passion project and always been something that we've come to do because we want to um and we you know have this sort of burning desire to make this book um to be honest i think what i originally sort of loosely thought volume three would be just ended up being issue eight. Oh, um doll story yeah doll story so it, it sort of yeah, like it, the story sort of structurally told me what it wanted to be and it wasn't what I initially thought. So yeah, um, so it seemed like the right time to take a break for sure. Well, in that last page, it's, it can be over and that's okay. And, I, and, and we can all live in that alternate universe that the Yin Yang Killers gave us and, or we could end here and that's okay. Um, oh God, I, I, know, I feel like I've got, we didn't even touch anything and we talked for an hour. Um, that's what makes excellent writing though, Dan, what you and Danny have done is I think a gift to people who like excellent storytelling. So thank you. Oh, thanks very much. Yeah. Um, 
it's been an extremely rewarding book to make. Um, it's been, you know, um, one of the things I think I'll always look back on um, most proudly. Yeah. Do you have any last questions, Jack, before I ask my final one and we let Dan promote himself? No, I don't think so. I think just want to say, you know, I can only echo what Tony says. He's put me onto a lot of good comics this last month. I, I made my goal for October reading all new horror comics um, <laughs> or comics set within a world of, you know, kind of horrific things. And yours has by far and away been the one that's been most exciting. So thanks a lot. Well, thank you. Yeah, it is. And for people who are book nerds like us, it's it just it hits it hits everything. And I've got this whole questions about Don Quixote I didn't even get to ask. Um, so I'll just pretend that I am right about that and um, go me. Um, yes, absolutely. No, I, I'm a big Don Quixote fan, and there's a lot of um, you know a lot of that with Taco. Like I couldn't decide if is is he Don Quixote and Taco's like Sancho gone awry, or is it is Doll Sancho? I I don't know. I couldn't help see it there because I love Don Quixote and I love the idea of you believing in something so terribly much that you can get the people around you, not in a gaslighting crazy bullshit way, but like in a real, like because of your love for something, you get the people around you to believe it too. So that's what, that's what I feel is going on in the book with these characters. So. Yeah, I mean, I haven't, haven't really thought about Don Quixote since, I mean, I read, I read, did I read it? I, I, no, I think I'd be lying if I said I read it all of it. I think I read the first book. There's like two books, right? There's two, yeah, because he yeah, wrote the yeah. first book and then people started, there was no copyrights then, so people started writing sequels. So he came in and wrote a sequel where Don Quixote dies at the end because he was like, yeah. hey. Yeah, so I, I, I know that I know that one, but I don't think, I think I think we got given it as like required, required reading when I was an undergrad. And I read, it's so big. I read the first it's, one. I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, but the second one was getting in the way of sort of um, drinking, uh, yeah, like playing in punk bands and, and yeah, yeah. The, stuff that, the stuff that really mattered when right. you were 19. Yeah, um, that's fair. So yeah, like, yeah, I, I, I've got to say like, it's cool that that reading is there, but I, yeah, Don Quixote is, isn't something I've sort of thought about in a while. Yeah, that's fair. It's just, it's something I'm always thinking about. I own several copies of it. I love it. It's one of my favorites I was I would say to Jack before we started one of my students when I taught it before said to me she like the greatest compliment ever paid she's like well this is you right like this is when you're done this is your life you're gonna be him I'm like I hope so that would be a great way to go out to be like just you know caught up in this world of night errantry and think but well, I don't know it's just so I love I love books I'm an, I'm an in, indoorsy introverted kind of guy so um so living in books I, I, is a great place. You know, have you read um have you read Fearscape? Fearscape? No. Um Ryan O'Sullivan and Andrea Mutti um is the artist. Uh so so Ryan's one of the guys in in my studio, White Noise. Uh and and Fearscape is his first. He's got a, he's got another book coming out called A Dark Interlude, which is a, which is not a sequel um to Fearscape as it insists um repeatedly. Uh and I think that would be one to look at for a, for a lens of Don Quixote. Uh, okay. Sure. Done. And on my reading list, Jack, put it on the list. That's the joke we always say to each other. It's on the list. Like, he'll say something. It's like, oh, Adam's yeah, on the list. Ever growing. Yeah, indeed. Well, Dan... Fearscape is a, is a razor sharp book. Like, I, like, you can cut yourself on that book. Ryan's, Ryan's a really big, uh, really big into sort of like Nabokov and, and that whole... Um, that whole tradition so like yeah it's um oh well yeah check i will be picking it up this afternoon 
for me this evening for you guys. So um, thank you, Dan. Thanks for joining us, Jack. So Dan, I will let you tell everybody your promotional stuff and then we'll let you go because we've kept you past your time. And then Dan and I will do our sign-offs and I'll edit all this out. Dan Waters, thank you for coming. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Please tell everyone yeah. where they can follow you and such. Oh, I am I am at Dan PG Waters, W-A-T-T-E-R-S. Um, on Twitter and technically on Instagram, but I'm, I'm not very good at using that. Twitter is definitely the best place to, to find me uh, on the internet. And you've got um, a new book coming out right when this comes out. I have two new books coming out in December. Um, I have Homesick Pilots through Image with Casper Wingard, uh, which is about a punk band uh, which breaks into a haunted house um, and it sort of turns into a haunted house walking across California um, by the end of that. So that's a that's a really fun. That's amazing. Thing. I can't wait. Um, and the other book is uh, the picture of everything else, which comes out uh, I believe the week after, uh, and that's with Vault Comics and with an artist called Kishore Mahan, who's a fantastic um, Indian illustrator. Uh, that book is a, a sequel to. The picture of Dorian Gray, um, in, oh which my God. The, <laughs> in which uh, paintings are being used to commit murders across uh, Paris. Oh man! All right, sold. That that is Oscar Wilde's masterpiece, obviously. But um, it's funny on my shelf in my bedroom, I have those like these word cloud books, you know, like where they take words from inside and they're on the front of the book. So I've got the entire Jane Austen collection. Don Quixote, Peter Pan, and Dorian Gray. Those are the books that are sitting there. So that's like, uh, that's yeah. I think, I think I think even for even for how sort of much it resounds, I think um, compared to some of its contemporaries, the picture of Dorian Gray really gets uh, the short short thrift. It doesn't really get talked about enough or explored enough. Um, yeah. So. Um, well, except the reason, maybe the reason no one talks about it, because it's clear that Paul Rudd has one. That's why he's 52 and looks like he's 25. <laughs> he's got the picture in his attic somewhere. Um, Keanu Reeves. <laughs> yeah, Keanu Reeves, right. I know there's a handful of people. Maybe they're all in a group, like Rob Lowe, Keanu Reeves, and Paul Rudd. They're all in a picture together, and that's why they, they have like, Yeah, they all had one, one big, one big uh, portrait sitting. <laughs> that's right. That's amazing. Castle Howard. Yeah. Oh, well, Dan, thank you again, sir. And we'll let you go. And then Jack and I will do our sign off where we promote our own stuff. Um, this uh, has been, so much for me. It's been a it's joy. Been thanks, thank pleasure. Cheers. Take care. Bye. Thank you, sir. That was great. Yeah. I mean, as you said, we didn't hardly touch on Anything. half the stuff we wanted to do, but yeah. we'd have to catch him for five hours, probably. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, seriously, this is eight issues. There's only eight issues and and right. and we could go on for it's so good. It's so good. You know those um podcast a minute thing things that people do, you know, they watch like Oh yeah, the Batman. Predator Minute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what you need for this. You'd need like a podcast for every like page or a podcast for, you know. You're right. I mean we could go through yeah, we could do eight episodes an hour for each book of twenty two pages. It yeah. I mean, Danny is amazing. Everything about 
like this world is is stunning. And so I appreciate you being able to jump on from your place of work. And um, I'm sorry if I talk too much. I was so excited about this. No, no, no. I think, you know, you're the guy that knows what you're doing. I'm happy to be led. <laughs> Thanks. Well, again, for people, I will link back to our previous um, recording. So tell everybody where they can find you on the internet as well, sir. Yeah, sure. I'm most active on Twitter. Um, I am Jack's Musings, J-A-C-S Musings, um, where I just mostly send out random thoughts about pop culture. Um, and then I also write little reviews just of any books that I've read or uh, films that I've seen or TV shows that I've happened to have finished. And I just post those on WordPress um, under the same name. I'm Jack's Musings, just as a little running diary of my my consumption, really. You can follow me on Twitter at TricycleBlueBox. You can go to my website, arfarina.com, and you can send me a message if you're not on Twitter. So we will end with Concrete Blondes. Thanks, Jack, for coming, man. Thanks, Dave. See you next time.
Hi, I'm Mike from the Genuine Chit Chat Podcast, where we have honest conversations with interesting people. I speak to a wide variety of guests, including CEOs of businesses, psychologists, authors, musicians, travellers, people suffering with physical and mental illnesses, and everyone in between. Where we speak about a large variety of topics, including music and movies and pop culture, but also some more controversial topics, including drug reform, political correctness, and many more. No subject is off limits. You can find us in all the usual podcast places, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts, as well as on YouTube. And you can follow us in all the usual social media places. And to be clear, I don't expect everyone listening to enjoy every episode of my show. What I do think is that due to the wide variety of guests and topics, that there'll be at least one episode that each person listening will enjoy. So if you still appreciate the art of conversation and want to hear honest conversations with interesting people, then be sure to check out Genuine Chit Chat in all the usual places.